0: Hello, my name is Peter McMillan, the Chief Executive Officer at NT Shelter. I'd like to acknowledge the Larrakia people, the traditional owners of the land in which we're broadcasting from today, and pay my respects to their Elders, past and present, and to any other First Nations people who might be watching on or listening to this podcast. Welcome. Today, we've got another great episode of Sharing the Couch, and I'm delighted uh, to be able to say that we're having a conversation with a gentleman over in Ireland. It's great to travel all that way overseas and to learn and and understand a little bit more about the housing challenges in in our other uh, countries, our friends and allies over in in Ireland, and I'm really looking forward to learning a bit more about the housing system and what they're trying to do over there. So uh, it's my great pleasure to introduce you to Rob Louth. Rob is the National Director of the Housing First National Office at the Housing Agency in the Republic of Ireland. Rob is based in Dublin. Before taking on this role, he was working at Limerick City Council as Head of Homelessness Services. His career has been in the local government space since 2003, including working as a housing maintenance manager. Rob holds qualifications in computer systems and programming and has a BA in management from the Institute of Public Administration. A very warm welcome from Darwin over to you in Dublin, I'm assuming. Rob, and good morning.
1: Yeah. Good morning, Peter. I'm actually in East Clare, would you believe, on the kind of on the West Coast uh, on the River Shannon. So a little bit different remotely working today.
0: Wonderful. And for those uh, of us, including me, I guess, who are just trying to picture where that beautiful part of the world no doubt is, is it near Galway or somewhere over near it
1: is, Yeah, it's south of Galway. It's kind of north of Limerick City. Uh the, the nearest town is a place, beautiful town, called Killaloo in County Clare, right on the uh, the uh bottom of Loch Derg, if anyone fancies a visit to this beautiful part of the world.
0: It sounds lovely. You know, um, if I had the means, I'll be on a plane tomorrow, Rob, but, you know, I can always look forward to some other stage. I'll have to see if I can find a good reason to get over there and understand the Irish housing system a little bit better definitely um, great
1: opportunity
0: but for today it's, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the program and to speak for you from afar and um, and I noticed that you work for the housing agency and you've got some uh, writing there is that in Gaelic or how would you describe that language you have yeah. there
1: yeah, um, it would, Gaelic. Um, so the, the primary language of Ireland would be as, as they would say it here. So it's it, it's a little like in Wales, for example, um, promoting the primary language. Um, so it's very important to us. Not all of us speak it very well, but it is, it's important to, to recognize our heritage and, and where we've come from as well. And then with, with every state agency, the harp is the symbol of Ireland, um, and and that was adopted in our uh, our independence just over a hundred years ago now. Um, so equally as, as important to people in the public service that when when the harp is on your logo, it's a it's a national symbol. It's a, a beacon, I suppose, to some extent for the the country as well.
0: Absolutely, and Rob, just while we're talking about that, in terms of the harp, obviously Ireland is very musical nation a uh, very lyrical uh, uh nation I guess as well what does harp symbolize
1: for Irish culture I suppose it's the the traditions and the uh, the, the historical aspect of Irish traditional music um and it is it's it's from the the fiddle to the harp uh, the baron would be another drum instrument uh, that would be very traditional to Ireland. So it's um and, and not dissimilar to some of the traditional instruments in in Australia as well, so yeah. But uh, an important
0: important symbolism. Absolutely, no, it's that's really uh really special. Now I, I guess uh, in terms of your background, you I mentioned in the introduction that you were um, working in Limerick, not far from where you are today, by the sound of things, and you've. Um, You've done some work in, originally in computer systems and programming. It's quite a quite a way away from housing. Uh, do you want to tell us a bit yeah. about your journey there?
1: Yeah, I suppose I originally in college when I when I finished in school, I I fancied the uh, the IT sector and computer programming. I had an interest there, and I worked for uh, while in Dublin. I worked for a number of uh, top companies. Um, would have had uh, employment with Microsoft. Uh, Corel, which was a graphics company that was subsequently taken over by um, by Microsoft, and then I moved to Limerick, and I was working for Dell Computers. Um, but again, it was I don't know whether it was a, a burning desire for change or I was tired of making money for the man. Um, but uh, I kind of felt my my life was away from uh, from the IT sector. And I suppose I'd built up a lot of skill as a people and project manager. Um, And that's where I I saw a job with the local authority and said, I could do that. And it was effectively managing homeless services. And it wasn't about, it was about bringing um, the project management and the people skills and porting them into that uh, space. And that was back in 2003. And I haven't looked back since. Um, I had a really good grounding in a local authority. Um, learned so much about the housing system, um, and I was working with Limerick in different guises through the the housing department, um, until uh, March of last year in twenty twenty two, when I took on the role within the housing agency to to head up the new uh, Housing First National Office, which. It is a project that I would have been involved in while working in the local authority. And I was very invested in because it was, I suppose, housing first was seen as the beacon, um, the solution for um long term homelessness, uh, the the real solution for housing people that we'd never been able to successfully house before. And and at the end of the day, that that's effectively what what we kind of got into. So yeah, so move sorry, go on, Peter.
0: No, so that's fantastic. So with a with a, a strong background in in data and in systems, um, you're able to transport that across into uh, into the housing, homeless space, uh, and also I guess uh, using those skills um, uh, and those programs to um, to make a difference in terms of. Uh, I guess people that you can make that strong connection to it's, it's interesting is it? I think a lot of us who work in um, in housing and homelessness who have worked in other industries before and myself included it's. It's nice I haven't worked for Microsoft or Dell or those sorts of companies, but coming across into the sector, you really do feel you can bring that experience across and make a difference in a, in a sector where you can see the results for your work.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, skills are transferable. There's no question. I did have a lot to learn. Um, I had to slow down coming into local government because my ideas were fast paced and maybe a little too fast for local government at the time. But I, I worked with a really good NGO sector that would have been delivering services for the local authority. And, and that was important to educate me on the human side of what was actually going on on the ground and then getting I suppose I'm the type of person that I like to get my my boots on the ground and get out there and meet tenants, get meet people who are in homeless facilities as well, to to actually understand and hear where they're coming from because I think so much of policy often gets dictated without actually translating. Well, what does somebody actually require?
0: Given that strong background in 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 programming and and and, and the like, did that also enable you to? And with a strong, I guess, uh, preference for data and evidence to be able to do the work that you do?
1: Yeah, it was important. Definitely it was important to be able to back up and uh, it, it made life a little easier when it came to writing things like business cases to develop new services. Um, and I suppose we, in the Midwest, we, we had a bit of a reputation for developing really good services um, and worked with some really good personalities in the NGO sector, within the health sector, um, and, and those partnerships were really important to, to delivery. And I think I learned that at a really early stage in local government, that you achieve nothing alone. You you have to work in partnership and you have to make sure your partners are with you and invested with you as well.
0: Absolutely. But also just following on from that, I guess, in terms of those partnerships, those collaborations, all important, as you say, um, what is the state of How would you rate the state of data in Ireland around, um, I guess, measurement of outcomes and also having that supporting evidence base you need to evaluate programs and to push for more programs and services?
1: Yeah, we've we completed um, a a really good evaluation uh, partnered with the University of Limerick, ironically, um, on the National Housing First system. Um, And that was focused. Unfortunately, it, it was focused a lot during covid so that didn't it didn't help the connection um but we still were able to gather the data and deliver a really good evaluation and and that is the i suppose as you said the important side of any program is having good data to be able to evaluate it in the right way um and and ultimately the the new implementation plan on housing first that we're working to at the moment is a large part the result of findings from the evaluation, so that it's not just data on a shelf, it's data that's been taken and used to kick on and and make the project even more successful in the future. Um, And equally from that, we've we've developed um, a quarterly monitoring system with all the regions in the country, so that we're continuously taking data and continuously seeing, well, where are the blockages? Where are the needs? for more resources. Um, and that's both from a housing support perspective and a clinical perspective as well. Rob, I'd like to
0: just um, mention a couple of terms just for our audience who might not be, f- not, might not be familiar with the um, different authorities and, and players in the housing space over there, um, the participants and their roles. Just before we get into the nitty gritty of the work that the um, uh, that, that you do as National Director of the Housing First National Office and the Housing Agency, just some of the other um, Bodies, obviously. So you've got the Department of Housing, Local Government and Heritage. I'm assuming that's like part
1: of the, the Irish government, Republic of Ireland government. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that would be the main housing department from from the, the Minister for Housing. At a national level. And then you've got uh, local authorities. What are they? Yeah, so you've got 31 local authorities around the country. Um, Dublin being the largest population base would be split into four local authorities. But from a homeless perspective, uh, there's one operating um, department that covers all four local authorities, which was really important to try and coordinate um, such a large large population base and obviously the largest uh, homeless side of things. But then around the country, you' are geographically typically geographically mixed between the nat- the natural county boundaries. To deliver services as well um and there, there's been a lot of reform in local government in ireland over the last 20 years where we've we've reduced the number of local authorities um in an effort to be more efficient um, and try to enhance local government as well by having more of a, a public engagement and a an elected representative engagement as well and i think that's been really important because again like any project you got to connect with the people and your elected members are, are that linked for local authorities as well. So e- each local authority would have local representatives um, based of the various parties um, that would equally then the national politics um, feeds in or the local government feeds into the national system in terms of the, um, the houses of parliament um, and the, the bigger scale of things. But everything usually starts on a local level and okay. to, feed, to feed in then to the national politicians as well so it sounds like in ireland you have like
0: those uh local authorities similar to our local government local uh councils local government areas um what was what's probably different is is we have state and territory governments you probably don't have those i'm, I'm under the yep assuming in Ireland, do the local authorities have uh, income from ratepayers and taxpayers, or is that all passed out from the federal government to them?
1: Yeah, it's it's a very much central government system in Ireland. Um there are ratepayers um within the, the local authority areas and that feeds the the majority of the the local government budget. But the sorry the part of the local government budget but Central grants from central government, be it Department of Housing, Department of Transport, when it comes to roads, they typically feed local authorities the the bread and butter aspect of um, of the finance. So it's while that is probably seen as a negative, in the sense that um, local areas aren't self sufficient in how they actually deliver, so that there's no local. Um, sales tax, for example, like you would have in other uh, jurisdictions, um, that's all centrally collected. Um, but there is, in, in the last number of years, there, there has been an introduction of a local property tax, which has given more control to elected members because they can vote on a percentage change in any given year, um, which has devolved an amount of power to local government. And that is happening slowly, but surely there is more uh, devolution of powers from central government to local government. And for example, um, Limerick, again, ironically, maybe as a I'm biased, um, but as a progressive local authority, um, voted to have a directly elected mayor, which is something that's a new departure for Ireland. Even Dublin doesn't have that. And that's expected to happen next year. So it's... I suppose, expected to have a directly elected mayor with a substantial budget staffing to be able to enhance the the city and the county of Limerick um in a different way. And that's it's going to be looked at broadly in terms of a, a pilot system to see how that system actually works out. so it's it's kind of exciting as well when you when you see that kind of thing happening.
0: absolutely. So in terms of the responsibility for the provision of, I guess last resort housing, so we we call that. In, in Australia, we call that public housing, that where it's housing that's provided for the lowest uh, income earning um, um, tenants. Uh, and if it's run by non-government organisations, we call them community housing providers, similar to, chose, I think, in the UK, housing associations. Um, I'm assuming in, in Ireland, that's the role of approved housing bodies. Is that right, AHBs? That's, that's AHBs, yeah. Right yeah. okay. So who's is responsible that- in Ireland at the end of the day for ensuring that people who are homeless or don't have access to affordable housing get get housing? Is it is it the is it the Department of Housing, Local and Heritage or is it the local governments also have a part to play like the local authorities?
1: Yeah, it's very much the the local authorities um so that's um, that that's um I suppose it's it's a, a legislative um part of the 1988 Housing Act that devolve that power to local government to be in the position to say, well, if somebody presents homeless, that you must provide housing for them. And there's obviously stipulations within that as to to what meets the criteria, but it's quite broad as well. Um, So that power power and that responsibility is there for local government. Um, Typically, um, it's a, a contracted service then, with your community service providers or your AHBs and in Ireland the the approved housing bodies they they're very much split into those who focus on social housing and those who focus on homeless services so it's but they're funded and the mechanisms to fund them are are pretty much the same in terms of the housing they they actually deliver but the the homeless organisations for me and it's they go that extra mile. They they have a completely different ethos, and they would be involved in maybe some more uh, fundraising than the larger AHBs as well. They would they wouldn't have fundraising managers, for example. They'd be more focused on delivering just raw social housing at mass, where the uh-huh. the smaller homeless providers are very niche in terms of the the skill sets that they actually have to deliver. Uh, the services to deal with complex individuals.
0: Okay, so roughly what what would the split be between, say, social housing that's owned by local authorities versus uh, that that's run by AHBs? Would it be 50-50 or or more? No,
1: I would say the existing housing that's that's in the public system at the moment would be more 60-40 to local government, to AHBs. And that's purely because historically, housing was delivered by local government. But in more recent years, the uh, the AHB sector have been delivering much more in terms of a, a, a 50-50 split, and in some years have been delivering more than local government as well. So I, I definitely see the space um, opening up more for approved housing bodies. Um, and the, the balance, I think, is going to be eventually 50-50 and then you would wonder into the future, are local government actually going to be delivering housing at all? Because it is becoming such a specialist niche market. Um, and at times, approved housing bodies are proven that they can maybe deliver a little bit faster as well. um. And that, again, can come down to uh, bureaucratic red tape at the same time.
0: Yeah, we're certainly having those discussions here in Australia at the moment in terms of the advantages that that, um, non-government organisations, the registered community housing providers can bring to the table and and there's certainly a lot of of those advantages that you've just mentioned. I'm I'm curious as to the general state of play, um, Rob, in terms of housing and homelessness, how you'd sum that up in in, in terms of Ireland. I'm just curious that uh, when I was, um, I guess, preparing for this conversation, I saw the Irish government has signed the Lisbon declaration on ending homelessness by 2030 so i was just curious as to what that involves what's what's the state of play and what does that uh, commitment uh involve
1: yeah i suppose it it is what it says on the tin in terms of the the minister for housing is is quite vocal about it as well and he he is i i genuinely believe committed to ending long term homelessness um and his support for projects like housing first have been uh, to the fore in terms of that but I suppose the state of play in terms of the high levels of um, both family homelessness and single homelessness is just—I suppose it's a—it's a consequence in the sense of the housing crisis and the demand for housing across the board. Um, I think the financial crash has had such an impact on the the housing market that when no new housing was being built at the time, and that slowed down, and that that gap between ramping up to deliver more public housing. I think that has just made the, I think worldwide, it's not just in Ireland. I think that is the problem where a number of countries are facing housing crisis at the moment and homelessness um, is at record levels across Europe, certainly um, without going further afield. Um, So it is the, the picture, we're delivering more social housing than we ever have at the moment but the numbers continue to rise in the sense that um you had a lot of people dependent on the private rented market which um they were maybe entitled to a housing support for example if um if they weren't able to get social housing they would get a, a payment uh, to their for so that they could pay their landlord but what's happening is um landlords are getting out of that market because they're finding it tougher and tougher so You're seeing a a drop in the private market uh, rental space because no new uh, properties are actually being delivered into that space because the the price of housing is so high. So the the return on investment isn't um, lucrative for anybody new coming into that market. So that then leaves the responsibility solely on the public system between local authorities and approved housing bodies as well
0: what does homelessness in Ireland look like do you what, would you have a lot of overcrowding in housing or would you have a lot of rough sleeping or couch surfing as we say
1: yeah you will have and i suppose couch surfing isn't typically measured in the the homelessness figures in Ireland um and i know it is in certain countries and i think that's where we all tend to count homelessness a little bit different um but the 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 general The general homelessness figure is is creeping up on about 13,000 at the moment. Uh, The vast majority of that is families, but at least with family accommodation, it's a little bit easier um, to actually move through the system. It's the single homelessness and uh, accessibility to one-bed properties, for example, isn't something that Ireland was delivering over the last number of years or historically. it, it's just not been there. so it it's proving a, a difficult point. You mentioned rough sleeping there. Rough sleeping has actually improved in the sense that in Dublin, for example, long-term rough sleepers have benefited from hugely from the housing first program um and and they're the people that have been targeted. and and these people, they deserve it in the sense that they meet the fidelity of housing first in terms of being, long-term rough sleeping or have a history of being in emergency accommodation as well and have multiple complex issues. So that 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 has been the real win for housing first, for example, in terms of reducing that long-term rough sleeping. Um, and it's while Dublin was the highest uh, proportion nationally of rough sleeping, there were pockets of it in the larger cities like Limerick, Galway, Cork, and Waterford. Um, and equally Housing First is having an impact in those areas as well.
0: And uh, I'm going to get to Housing First very, very soon, I, I, I can promise. But I just had a couple other things that occurred that were interesting that occurred as well. And, and, and one was the fact that you have a lot of vacant properties in, in Ireland. And I was just curious about that. Why do you have so many vacant uh, properties?
1: Yeah, I suppose uh, vacancy vacancy and dereliction kind of go hand in hand. Um, And again, a lot of that vacancy is in areas, rural areas, for example, where somebody may have been left a property historically. They never had the money to actually invest or do anything to it themselves. um, And they had no interest. It may have been sentimental. It may have been a family property. So... That is by and by, that is part of where we've, we've gotten to. And I think the housing crisis opened up uh, uh, a different eye looking at derelict properties. So that's one aspect of it. Then you have small towns, um, and even in large cities, you have a lot of derelict commercial properties that started coming, just coming up on the market that were, I'm sure Australia is the same, The the advent of people shopping online moved away from the need for commercial properties. So we we have actually been really good in Ireland at changing and turning a lot of that derelict property into um, social housing as well. And it's giving a, a regeneration, for want of a better description, to a lot of small towns and villages where it's an eyesore. In the past, it was an eyesore to drive down the main uh, thoroughfare of a small village, whereas now there's been a lot of really good grant schemes available um, with interest-free loans, for example, uh, delivered by local authorities to people who own these properties. And then they could lease those properties to local authorities uh, for a reasonable rent, return on uh, rent. Um, and it means that it's not going to be compulsory purchased and that it's actually delivering um, a social housing uh, need within a town as well. So, there have been there have been blights and there have been good examples in terms of where we've been able to work and turn things around as well. Yeah, I really like that example of of the commercial turning that commercial property into social housing, yeah.
0: working with local um, commercial operators and 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 repurposing. That's that's uh, yeah. that's that's the best of community collaboration, isn't it? When you've supported Absolutely. such housing need as yeah. well. Also, yeah. uh, I guess it must be a tough situation in Ireland for renters as well. I, I noticed that there's a. There's uh, limited rent increases to general inflation over there. Uh, yeah, is there a that, bit of a rental crisis? There's just not enough places to rent in a private market?
1: Ultimately, it is. And it's, it's having an impact. The, the rent pressure zones have been really good in the last number of years in terms of trying to control the rent. Um, but again, it it's just doesn't seem to be enough in terms of the, the lack of properties on the market. And that possibly is one of the reasons why a lot of landlords may be leaving the market as well is that they're they're limited in, in terms of how much they can increase their rents as well. Um, so from that perspective, while you're trying to do good, there's always an opposite effect that may go with um, a rent pressure zone uh, correction as well. But I think controlling, when things started to get out of control, certainly in Dublin, it started. Um it, it was a good point to actually bring it in uh to the system. Um, but a lot of it was focused in the larger cities as well. But when you confine a rent pressure zone to one part of an area or a county, typically what happens is the population spill outside that zone then to try and find the property as well. So I think there've been really good lessons learned in terms of that trying to control the actual rents within the country um but it's 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 certainly it's the lack of available rental properties that has driven the rent increase um ultimately within Ireland that's
0: something that needs to be it uh, with caution isn't it how hey, you implement those Absolutely. things yeah make sure you yeah. know the implications just like to yeah. turn now then to the housing agency and and um and your part in that as national director of the housing first national office rob can you tell us a bit about the housing agency the the work that you do there and and specifically yeah. then the work that you do as uh the housing first national office
1: yeah i suppose the housing agency is a, a sub department of the department of housing um, and it's a vehicle that sits between uh, the Department of Housing and the local authorities. So from that perspective, it's a center of knowledge. And if the Department of Housing have new schemes that they they wish to run um, and roll out, it's usually the vehicle is usually the housing agency as the first point of contact. So ultimately, the, the housing agency, while running schemes, has to be a center of knowledge uh, for all things housing within the country, um, and the in the last number of years, the actual the roles that the uh, the housing agency have actually taken on are so wide and diverse, from managing defective concrete block schemes, for example, to working with homelessness on housing a project like Housing First and setting up the National Housing First Office within the agency. Is I th- I think they're the best two examples I can give as to how far you can get apart. Um, but it's um, yeah, it's it's a really progressive agency as well in the sense that it's it's always how can we help, how can we do more, and I suppose that's to try and be a bit of a lifeline for local authorities as well because as government introduce new schemes, they become resource intensive as well. And we're all very conscious that resources worldwide are are seemingly becoming scarce and skilled resources even more so. And and that is an issue and that we all need to be mindful of that when you ask for more, you have to realize, well, who's actually going to deliver the more? And I think the agency have been really good to to be that support for local authorities um, and and trying to take up a bit of the, the, the legwork for want of a better description. To take pressure off local authorities as well so i think yeah, that's... that's sorry yeah
0: no i was just gonna say it sounds like a really important a uh, bridge between the local authorities and and the department and uh, i was just uh, noticed some of the um, skill sets and experience that uh, the agency has just listed um, here uh, includes housing policy expertise researchers architects engineers project managers and planners and building the capacity in the sectors through education and information. So there's a lot of valuable work um, that's done there in terms of, um, I guess, uh, design delivery, the the whole box and dice. Yep,
1: yeah, the 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 whole kit and caboodle, as they would say over here. But it's um, and and even when you mentioned some of the that area, there, I suppose I'm I'm in a service inclusion department. And again, we're very much aligned uh, with just the the raw housing delivery within uh, local government. And when I say housing delivery, it's not even the physical side of it. It's about uh, projects like um, we had talked earlier about uh, grants for older people, grants for people with disabilities, um, uh, disabled person strategies, for example. That's been really important and trying to drive the the, the idea of being more inclusive and trying to drive the properties need to be kitted out at an earlier stage for dealing with different parts of someone's life as well. Um, and I suppose then the, the whole homelessness area that we've become involved in housing first is one part. But again, we've started doing a lot of work on things like the youth homeless strategy that was rolled out by the Department of Housing as well last year. Um, and trying to kind of drive that because when you look at a rental market that's uh, oversaturated, young people are the first ones to actually miss out because A, they've been discriminated on because you're just too young, um income grounds, and then experience. They don't have experience of private rented sector housing, so no one's going to give them a chance. So there's been more and more um, emphasis on that and then preventing people uh, young people from actually becoming homeless at the same time which is more important because i suppose it's something that the government have been driving is that prevention is the the first protocol and everything because if you stop it happening in the first place you're saving the individual, the trauma of becoming homeless then later on. And you're actually been more cost effective in your investment as well. Absolutely. What is roughly the
0: by tenure? What is the breakdown in terms of renting in you know, on versus home ownership? Is would it be 20, 30% renting or would it be be more than that? I mean, is there a huge I, I would
1: say yeah, it's it's probably about thirty percent. And I wonder is, is that actually increasing in more recent years as well? Homeownership has has definitely, it was always, home ownership was very much the the target for everybody in Ireland. And it probably still is in so many different ways. But just because of the cost um, and then the high rental costs, just people aren't uh, in the space to be able to save the way they may have in the past because yeah. they're paying so much um, in rent. And I mean, 30, 30% is the typical, I suppose the, the mark of uh, how much income you want to spend on your rental uh, outlay. and that's getting higher and higher. So that just means that people have less disposable income to actually save um to buy property into the future in our you, country. yeah, and that's where you we've we've grown into the uh, the affordable housing space more and more, which I think is really important because and and that's maybe where we missed a trick in Ireland. In the sense that when we started getting into pressure points, we may have started looking at affordable housing a little bit too late, but we're moving in that space now and we've made some really, really good um, progress in the affordable housing space. Um, But again, it's an area that needs more and more um, because you have young families, single people who have really good incomes but they just don't have the opportunity to be able to buy where they want to buy as well. Choice uh, becomes a part of that. So, But I've I've seen some really good um, kind of partnerships between local authorities and approved housing bodies in delivering affordable housing as well. And then looking at cost rental, affordable cost rental properties is something else that's been worked on at the moment. Which is where the rent is guaranteed to be at a lower amount, which means that individuals could then have a bit of space to save uh, for the future as well.
0: And who who meets that subsidy gap? I guess that difference between market price and uh, affordable.
1: Ultimately, that's from grants from central government in terms of making the build more cost effective for the approved housing body or the local authority. Um. So, and and that's when you look at. The economics of housing—you need to be very mindful as to well how far do you go to interfere in the housing market as well, and that's a really tough uh, tightrope for any government to actually walk, regardless of the pressures and regardless of opposition parties and the noise that's in the housing space. You really, and it's like the 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 rent pressure zones that we talked about earlier as well. If you if you make a decision in a market, you have to be very aware as to, to what the reaction might be in the market as well.
0: Absolutely. And I guess in Australia where we're now talking about either voluntary or mandatory inclusionary zoning where we set aside a proportion of New uh, new land that's released and for subdivision, maybe uh, having twenty percent of it for social and affordable housing, and the rest at market. Just understanding the implications and the, the impacts, the whole the whole way price responds, and the um, it's very important to I guess uh, you have that consultation and make sure the vision's clear and and it's properly priced as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, we'd have we'd have similar um similar kind of parts in Ireland uh, around that twenty percent. But what's happening is that you're dependent on the private market to deliver that mix as well. And because the private market aren't building as much or investing as much, there's a real slowdown in terms of any transfers um, to deliver extra properties there as well. So very interesting so let's talk about housing
0: first um which is your remit uh, rather my understanding is you've been in this role for around a year or a little bit over a year now. Yeah just
1: just over a year March I took up
0: the role March of last year yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Wonderful. So to to from your perspective can you just tell us what housing first means to you a little bit and a little bit about how it's come about
1: in Ireland and where it's heading from from here. Yeah um I suppose maybe maybe just the the, the historical sense of it um originally housing first kind of started in ireland as a pilot in dublin on a really small scale and it was it was the thought of housing the most vulnerable the most chaotic um but ultimately housing the individuals who'd never had an opportunity to properly sustain a proper uh, a tenancy um ever before so excuse me, I suppose from, from the Dublin perspective, it it actually worked out really successful. Um, and it started to gain traction in terms of the housing aspect of it, but I suppose housing first is so codependent and this is even working in a local authority, delivering housing first. It's only in the last year that I've really started to see the importance of housing and health. Um, so it's, the early days of the pilot in Dublin, the health aspect was a little bit slower to come on board in the sense that dedicated resources had to be made available. Um, But it was happening. The housing was happening. There were supports with existing health services within the community. And there was a wraparound support being delivered to the individuals. Um, And I suppose as it kicked on, then in 2018, there was a pilot Um. And I suppose it was a pilot that was directed around change and change management. And there was a a, a really good organization called Genio in Ireland, who focus on um, service reform. And they were kind of the project ma- the initial project managers at the time, and they were bringing philanthropy money in with government money to drive it across a couple of cities, um, namely in Cork, Limerick, uh, Waterford, and eventually into Galway as well. And I suppose that's where the the program and the evaluation was actually carried out as well. So as Housing First developed, specialist health roles were actually funded um, within uh, health service areas, side by side with the housing teams that were contracted out to NGOs. So you didn't equally have one NGO delivering all the housing first services across the country. It was a spread, it was a tender, and it was a spread between the various different NGOs that that had the skill set in in the country. So I suppose, in terms of the, the collaboration and where we started to deliver housing um, and where it really made an impact for me, um, and I, I can give you this real real example from Limerick. There, there was an unfortunate lady who I had known for many years had been homeless uh, in the city um, had a multitude of different issues, but had never received an official diagnosis because she actually never got to sit in front of anybody for any period of time because of her addiction issues and because of her mental health issues. Ultimately, um, she was street working um, she was involved in a whole load of other different things as well and was just very vulnerable. Um, would sleep rough for long periods of time, would would never be comfortable living in emergency accommodation either. So when we actually developed Housing First in Limerick at the time, um, I made it my business to make sure that she was the first tenant. A lot of people looked at me and said, well, she doesn't have a diagnosis. She doesn't have this. She doesn't have that. And I said, what are we actually trying to deliver here? Housing First is about removing these barriers and removing the red tape that blocked individuals like this from being housed. So that was 2018. Um, I stuck to my guns. Um, She was the first tenant. And touch wood, to this day, she's now living really happily. Um, She's rekindled with a partner. Um, she's uh, reduced her addiction in terms of she stopped drinking. She's addressed health issues. Um, she's now engaged in mental health services. and the psychologist who's primarily involved in the team as well. And she's living a really good quality of life. Going on day trips are the highlight of her life at the moment. Doing a little bit of dancing with her partner, and she's supported and helped through the um, by the team to get to different events. But she has a quality of life now that she never had. In the probably in the seventeen odd years that I would have known her since she first became homeless, how she survived is beyond me. But the fact that she's now housed and living a comfortable life um, is just testament to what actually can be delivered. But it's individuals like that who have never been given an opportunity, never been given a chance, that housing first actually works for. Um, Rob, where that is housing such, first. Sorry, that's yeah. like, Rob, that's such a
0: a powerful, this incredible story really of the difference that housing can make, and um that to, you know that sums it up in a nutshell, doesn't it? No, yeah. uh, no judgment. Get the person into housing, give them that chance, then to, to tackle yeah. their needs and provide the supports.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's it's not without its flaws either in terms of we have some uh, Housing First participants who are now on the third tenancy. But the beauty of Housing First is if a tenancy is failing, you don't punish them. You don't take them aside and say, well, you've been evicted now, so you go to the back of the list. They don't understand Um and the, the, the responsibility is taken by the team to find a new property, to rehouse them, and then go back and look at, well, what was the issues? Where where did we go wrong here? But try and address those issues as well with the tenant. It's not that you're just walking away from a problem. It's that you're trying to say, well, this is what happened. This is why we had to move you. And working with them on those things as well. And, and trying to unearth the trauma that somebody is actually suffering um, that makes them behave in certain ways. And I think a big part of homelessness. And I was when I when I worked directly in services and working with psychiatric nurses who were very much, well, I can't deal with that person until they deal with their addiction. And having an opportunity now to actually work with individuals who have an addiction, but work in a harm reduction way. And I think everybody's been educated from, from a health side to a housing side to actually understand that, okay, we can work with people in addictions and we can help them reduce their addictions and improve their quality of life and ultimately improve the outcomes. I mean, where where we go, we meet with everybody in the, the there's nine regions in terms of homelessness in Ireland. So local authorities from a homeless perspective in different regions are uh, clustered. So we're meeting with nine regions on a quarterly basis where we have monitoring data and we hear the, the case studies, like the one I've talked about there. But for me, the powerful side of it is we hear about the difficulties, we hear about the gaps and the blockages and what we need going forward, but we hear about the positives. We hear about individuals and it was one guy in, in the Midlands in the country in a really rural area. And we'd heard at one quarterly meeting, we heard some bad things about him in terms of he was pretty low. And in the next meeting, we heard, would that all change when we got him a job? And he's he's still involved in addiction, but he's in a harm reduction way, but he's able to function in employment and hold down a job as well, which something small like that to, to everybody else, but that's the beacon Uh, for a successful scheme as well, because that's where it kicks on to say, well, you know what, that positive example can be replicated around the country. And a big part of what we're trying to do from a a national office perspective, and it's, it's kind of an unusual project as well, in the sense that we are a national office. Again, we're sitting between departments and pulling different government departments together, not just Department of Housing, Department of Justice, Department of Health, Um, Department of Social Welfare as well. Um, So we're bringing all these different government departments together to help us on the journey. And that collaboration is key. And I think why it's actually partly successful as well is that it's had really good sponsorship from the top level of government because they realize it is the rose in in the thorns at the moment in terms of homelessness and if it's successful, why not invest more and more into the project as well? Because then we're gonna reduce that long-term homeless aspect. And it brings it back to your point about Lisbon. It's the real commitment to Lisbon is that the more we invest at the, 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 the cold face of long-term rough sleeping, long-term homelessness for those who are chaotic and in complex needs. So that that's a really big part of the the collaboration and the drive.
0: I think also you mentioned that sometimes things don't always work out or you might need to move tenancies or change the, 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 the location. But I think the statistic I've seen um coming out from from your work is that around eighty-six percent of them are successful. Yeah. Which is a yeah. which is a pretty strong endorsement that the, the 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 approach works.
1: Yeah. No, it is 86%. And while I suppose I don't try and drive that, I think that's that's a great result and that's a great output. It's not something we focus on trying to drive towards because I think that takes away from the, the natural uh, work that actually happens within the project. I mean, if somebody needs to be evicted for various reasons, then they need to be evicted. There's no two ways about that. Um, it's not that people aren't held responsible uh, for their actions as well. And that that is a big part of it. And I think that was a big part of trying to trying to explain to local authorities because it's very alien to a local authority to say, well, we've had a few problems in this apartment or this flat. We gotta to move to a new flat. Um and I think there's there's been a lot of minds and we still have a lot of minds to change as well. It's not it's not necessarily um the finished article, um, but that's part of the process as well.
0: And do you think that agencies such as health and criminal justice sector getting their engagement? Do you think they also get to see the benefits for the reduced spending in their areas on people yeah. who are?
1: Is that a big factor yeah. as well? And there's really good examples, um, and there's some good data that we've we've seen in a in a hospital in Cork, where um, some of the team actually studied uh, participants, and they were able to go back and look at the data. Prior to being housed in uh, housing first, and I think it was it was based on four uh, participants. So in the three years before um, housing first, and the three years after they'd actually been housed, and the emergency department admissions went from I think it was 170 down to four. Wow. So that if if that in any language is telling you this program works and it's taking valuable time away from emergency departments, there you go. And it's the same in the in the criminal justice space then as well. They're really keen to, to get involved because they struggle in terms of trying to rehouse people who've been in the criminal justice system because of the stigma that goes with it. But what we've actually seen is a lot of people who've been in complex homeless situations they typically reoffend and reoffend, uh, often to get a bit of respite themselves and to get a roof over their head in prison for the winter. But what we're actually seeing with housing first is, again, it's giving people an opportunity. It's working with them and it's stopping them from reoffending, which saves the community, and then in return, it's saving the the prison service the the need to actually deal with them. Absolutely.
0: Rob, uh, I'm still struck by that story of the of the woman that you mentioned who you've known for 18 years. Incredibly powerful story uh, uh, Look uh, on that. And um, I guess I'm just curious about the way in which um, Housing First needs to engage with neighbours and local community because I guess um, housing people with complex needs uh, can sometimes, at least in Australia, can create a little bit of tension around, you know, uh, maybe not in my backyard kind of culture. Do you want to talk us through how you managed to get people housed in those situations and make it sustainable and in a way that's been successful?
1: Yeah. And it, it's kind of interesting because when I was looking at your own website and looking at what you do, the, the biggest thing that struck me was the the challenging community perceptions of homelessness. And, and that to me, that really sticks out to me because that's what we're all about. Um, it, it's, Communities don't typically know or understand homelessness unless it's affected them um, directly, and and that's where we're we're trying to do a lot of work around that. But again, the individuals we're trying to house and housing first, and we we bring one of the the fidelity elements is choice, so that if if Peter is from um, Limerick City, for example, Peter wants to live in Limerick City. He's from the city. He's from that community. And it's about working with communities to actually talk to them about that because they need to understand we're not trying to take people who aren't from your area and place them with you. We're trying to look after and help people who actually came from this community. And I think we, we've had good examples around the country in terms of that, where people have always known um, somebody who's been homeless and they've always looked at them and they pity them, but they never knew what to do in terms of supporting them. But for them to see the the individual getting a house, getting a a flat and getting the opportunity to actually succeed, it's quite eye-opening and it's quite empowering as well. It's probably, it's more relevant in rural areas because rural areas are more, I think, about communities. Larger cities, you can be anonymous in a large city and nobody will know who you are. But in rural communities and rural villages, everybody knows your business, everybody wants to know your business because they're trying to protect the community. So we do engage in the in the best possible way that we can with community groups. Um, community policing is a real part of what we try and engage as well because it, it's a real kind of level breaker in the sense that, well, if the community police are involved um, in a project and are happy to, to talk to the person, engage with the person, support them, it must be okay. So that's a real part of gaining that actual trust within the community as well. But there are examples where community trust has been lost at the same time, um, and that happens. And that's about rebuilding relationships as well and working with communities. And at times it's a a case of, well, the next tenant, so say if somebody was uh, in trouble in a community and they were moved to a different flat, the next person that's moved in has to be carefully managed and carefully selected at the same time
0: yeah and I guess also these issues at least in uh, in Australia from time to time can become uh, a lot of pressure on the the offices of local members of parliament for example like you know we need this fixed and it creates a lot of um, yeah creates a lot of uh, tension at times so you're right it needs to be managed very carefully and have good consultation with people Ab- absolutely yeah. Just in terms of um, uh, just any final thoughts around housing first and what it might look like, just for us to imagine what a typical housing first um, property might look like for someone, let's say putting an individual into um, into into housing, um, is it can it be in congregate living or is it generally going to be an independent uh, apartment or house? Uh, that, that that how does it generally work? What might it look like?
1: Yeah, um, I, you know, I I suppose housing first is labelled across the world in different ways and i suppose what we've we've taken a, a policy direction from and again it's been driven by government that this is the policy that we try and follow the pathways model from the united states and samson baris dr samson baris who's the the creator the godfather is he wrote our manual in terms of training for housing first and I suppose is working with us to keep the, the fidelity of it. So in that sense, we work on a scattered site housing basis. And then we don't, ultimately, if it's a, a block of units, we don't want more than 20% of that block to be housing first um, tenants either. So I suppose we try and keep it scattered site as best we can and low key. Um, and I suppose from that perspective, Congregate living, if you've got an apartment block, yeah, you share a corridor with somebody that can add complications as well. So equally for a lot of tenants, we try and look for owned door accommodation, which is more difficult to find, but it can often be important in the sense that you know an individual and you've assessed that person and worked with them for a long time and you know the type of accommodation that might suit them better. So I think that's important as well. And again, giving the tenant choice as well, sometimes tenants might feel more secure when they're in an apartment block rather than having their own front door onto a street, for example. So there's a lot of different things that you have to take into, um, into account. We typically want to keep it to one bedrooms as well, because we have examples where properties have been overtaken by other individuals who... Again, if you're taking somebody who's been rough sleeping for a long period of time, they, they meet people, they, their friends are equally rough sleeping and they get their own property. The first thing that happens is, well sure, can't I stay in your second bedroom or can I do this and I do that? And again, we, we try and avoid that at all costs and work with people to um, to rehouse them as well if we have issues where they've taken over a property. Again, it can often be just an accommodation uh, choice issue. And again, rather than trying to be heavy-handed, it's about engaging whoever's done it as well, because they typically will have their own issues. Rob,
0: I'd just like to conclude with one final question, just a bit of context for our our viewers. So Ireland is looking to build around 33,000 homes each year for the next 10 years, I think. So quite a significant build program across those different categories of housing. Some will be... Um, the rent bill, um, some will be for affordable housing, some will be obviously if, um, normal, normally priced market housing. Um, it sounds like uh, Housing First is making a terrific um, inroad into addressing rough sleeping across um, Ireland. What about the remaining homelessness cohorts, maybe some that aren't measured in terms of couch surfing and that? And I guess what's your thoughts as to the extent to which the Housing First model might be able to be taken up over those coming uh, over the coming years to uh, to end, uh, I guess, homelessness in Ireland.
1: Yeah, I, su- I suppose housing first. As we ramp up, we're in in terms of a target. We have a, a relatively small target up to twenty twenty six of thirteen hundred and nineteen properties. Um, we think we're going to exceed that because demand is there to exceed it. But I suppose where we're focused on within Housing First is not just housing everybody in one-bed properties. It's about meeting the needs for those who have the complex issues, who have the dual diagnosis of addiction and mental health. Again, it, it's we've we're been accused of keeping our focus of Housing First narrow in terms of we're very much focused on that. But that's why we have successful outcomes as well. But as you said, we need that 30,000 uh, units to be delivered every year because that's that's what will really save us from the housing crisis. The focused work of Housing First will focus on people who are rough sleeping, who are in long-term homeless accommodation and help them break their cycles as well. So I think that's, that's where we're really focused on over the next number of years. And I think it's the... It, it's the wider social housing delivery that will save the the general homelessness market between families and singles. But for the ones who really have the high support needs, Housing First is going to be there to actually to help them and support them into the future as well.
0: Wonderful, Rob. Thank you. We're going to leave it there. I'd like to thank you so much for um, no joining our podcast today. Bringing uh, the uh, really incredibly important work you're doing over there in Ireland to an Australian audience, where well, it's our pleasure to uh, have you on the on the podcast, and we wish you every success with the work you're doing as part of the housing agency.
1: Yeah, thank you very much. It's been really enjoyable, and equally, I, I wish you guys every success in in your endeavours. And I, I think this is a great platform to be able to to share thinking and share share ideas.
0: Thank you, Rob. Uh, You've been uh, watching or or listening to uh, Rob Louth, who is the National Director of the Housing First National Office at the Housing Agency in the Republic of Ireland. Thank you for joining us on this podcast today. If you like the podcast, please like and subscribe to our channel so that we can get it out to more people. And until next time, bye for now.
1: You've been listening to episode 12, season 2 of Sharing the Couch by NT Shelter.
0: Opinions expressed by guests on Sharing the Couch are their own and do not
1: necessarily represent the views of NT Shelter or host Peter McMillan. Thanks for listening and don't forget to hit subscribe.